Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ruth chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Um, so there's been kind of a progression in the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, the key events that took place in chapter 1 took place on the path, the path from Moab to Bethlehem. It's where the key events took place. In chapter 2, the key events took place in a field at harvest time. The key events of chapter 3 took place on a floor, in particular a threshing floor. And this morning, as we look at chapter 4, the key events take place at a gate. They take place at a gate. And it's interesting, what we talked about last week in chapter 3, what Naomi had tried to accomplish in chapter 3, uh, she, we talked about it, there was some manipulation going on. Uh, it was kind of in secret, in the dark, with very few witnesses. What Naomi tried to accomplish in chapter 3, Boaz is going to do out in the open in front of many witnesses in broad daylight at the city gate, which was basically the courtroom of their day, or you might even be their city council. And, you know, I just I was thinking about that, the reflection, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we do things kind of in the secret or we kind of, you know, huddle with someone and maybe, you know, there's a little bit of side stuff with sidebars, what the, you know, elder or elders, uh, the lawyers talk about. There's stuff that goes on and we kind of do it kind of, uh, you know, maybe covertly or something what a blessing to do everything that we do out in the open you know that we don't have like two sides to us I remember when my dad passed away and uh, one of the things that I and I did the funeral service for my father and, and one of the things that I was just proud to say was that he was the same guy in public that he was in private there was there was absolutely zero difference if you if you knew him out in the open or in the business place that's how i knew him at home that's just the way he was that is a blessing if, if you have family members like that's a blessing and it's a blessing to live that way because you know if you're always deceiving if you're always lying or you're trying to manipulate sometimes you can lose track of who you've manipulated into doing what right and or who you've spoken you know a little shit you know you have to kind of like oh man i gotta remember what did i say to that or how did i deal with that man if you just do everything in the open there's nothing you don't you're like me you can forget everything thing, which I do. <laughs> Anyways, the blessing of living life out in the open, and that's exactly what Boaz does here in chapter 4. Beginning with verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friends, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So like I mentioned, a little alluded to anyways, the gate in the city in the Old Testament days, it was like the city council chambers. It's where the elders of the city would meet. They'd discuss important things. It's where judgments would be made and, and, and it'd be like a courtroom too and we know in the Bible it says it over and over again that two or three uh, witnesses are required to establish the fact you know you otherwise it's one person's word against another you, you can't do that right so you always there needs to be witnesses so the Bible established two or three witnesses to establish a fact but here Boaz is getting ten men so in it's a bigger decision it's a, it's a bigger thing more witnesses uh, 
uh, it's a very important transaction that's going to take place. So these guys are sitting there listening to Boaz and this kinsman redeemer. And I'll be referring to him also off and on as the Goel. Goel, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but I'll either say Goel or kinsman redeemer. It's the same. If, if I'm just giving you the Hebrew word for it. So verse 3, then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, hey. No, he didn't say hey. My Bible doesn't say that. That's a, that's a Hebrew, right? No. It says, I will redeem it. I have a friend that, you know, whenever he's talking, he's like the Lord speaking to me. And the Lord said, dude, do that. You know, I'm like, does Jesus say dude or something? Anyways. So this kinsman redeemer, the guy that's the closest one, the guy that's eligible and the guy that's supposed to do uh, these tasks, he says, hey, I'll redeem the land. You know, he liked the idea of acquiring more land, but, you know, his character is going to kind of show through a little bit. His character shows through because he had the privilege of buying back the land to keep it in the family, and that's in Leviticus chapter 25. That was one of the privileges of being the next of kin or the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer. But he also had the obligation to marry Ruth and to raise offspring in the name of Malon, which was Ruth's uh, husband had passed away. Deuteronomy 25 talks about that. The Levirate marriage um, is what that's referring to. So he had the privilege to buy the land. He's like, yeah, I'll buy it. But he never stepped forward to raise up an offspring to Ruth. Um, he was willing to redeem the property of Elimelech, but not the posterity of Elimelech. He wanted the privilege, but not the obligation. You know, it's interesting. We're never told in the Bible what his name was. We're never, we're never given a name other than that he was the guy that was supposed to do these and he didn't do it. And I think the reason why is because he's not worthy of recognition. Because he wouldn't step forward and obey the Lord in that command for the kinsman redeemer. You know, there's a lot of guys like this guy. Not necessarily this guy, but a lot of guys like this guy. Um, they want the privileges, but not the obligations that go with it. For example, and this might step on toes, but hey, um, that's, I can do that. Um, they might want to play house. You know, they want to have a sexual partner, but they're unwilling to commit to the obligation of being a husband in the presence of God and before people. They, they, want, the, they want the fun, but not the obligation. There's a lot of people like that in our world today. And this guy's character is kind of like that. Verse 5, and then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, remember he was willing to do it, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. In other words, hey guy, this is a package deal. You not only get the land, but you also get the wife. You also get uh, Ruth the Moabitess as well. Verse 6, and the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I love you too. Ever said that? <laughs> I heard the Holy Spirit saying that. No. <laughs> 
You know, he says, I cannot redeem. I can't. Sorry, that was a, if you didn't know, that was just a, a phone thing. So I love you. And so I thought somebody was saying I love you. So. <laughs> That's cool. It's, it's a, that was a good one. <laughs> so this guy here says, I can't redeem it lest I ruin my own inheritance. He's not being really factual here. It's not that he can't redeem it. It's that he will not redeem it. There's a big difference. He will not, even though he's saying I can't. The land that he was so willing to purchase for himself and for his posterity, because here he's acquiring more land, it's going to go up in value. He can, he can pass it on to his children. Now, if he takes Ruth as the Moabitess and raises up a son through Ruth, that property will go to the son and not to him. So in his mind, hey, I've just shelled out all this money because part of my obligation, I've got to buy this land to keep it in the clan, in the family. But I've spent all this money, and now it's just—it's not—it's not going to be mine. It's going to be this other son, this other heir. And so it's not that he couldn't; it's that he was unwilling to. Sometimes people will say that to you: "I can't do this or that." And it's right, really? No, you can. It's just you don't want to, right? You just got to be honest with people. Just be frank. I don't want to do this, you know. But some people have a hard time saying that, so they say, "I can't." And that's what this guy said: "I can't do that." And there Boaz had said to him, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess. I think it's interesting that he said that. I don't think he's manipulating. By the way, we talked about manipulation last week. I don't think he's trying to manipulate the kinsman redeemer. He's just stating a fact. But I think it's kind of shrewd in one sense. Because the Moabites, as a nation, they were kind of at animosity with the Hebrews. And so, you know, if you had any kind of racial, you know, feelings towards, you know, any animosity towards the race of the Moabites, then, man, surely that would kind of like kindle something in this guy. If he already had something in there, like I don't like Moabites, then to, 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 to take a wife that's a Moabitess, pff, I don't want to do that. And so there's some shrewdness here, I think, in Boaz's bringing up Ruth the Moabitess. And I think this may have factored in the Goel's response. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. So they mentioned that it's a custom, but it also is in scriptures having to deal with the Leverite marriage. In, and it's in Deuteronomy 25, verses 7 through 9. You can just make a note of that. Actually, I'll read it to you here. I got it in my notes here. But it's basically if a brother of a deceased you know, a, a guy married a woman and his, and he died and his brother would be the next in line. Uh, if he was unwilling to fulfill that Leverite marriage, it says here in Deuteronomy 25 or 7, but if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. 
pretty severe, pretty gross. Who wants to get spit in your face, you know? Um, I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, why didn't Naomi do this? Why didn't Naomi make a big stink about it? And you got to remember, this is the time of the judges, and the Bible says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they weren't really following the word fully. That's all I can think of. But anyway, so you have this, this kinsman redeemer who's unwilling to redeem what he's supposed to redeem. The wife then could take, you know, in the presence of the elders, take off the guy's sandal, spit in his face and say, you know, and say, this is so be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. What's interesting about that is that Israel was unwilling to be redeemed by their kinsman redeemer. They were, they were unwilling for Jesus Christ to be their savior. And so they ended up spitting in his face and yet, that's why he was dying for them. He was willing to redeem them. He's not like this guy. He was a willing redeemer, and yet they spit in his face. Well, verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built up the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Epaphrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the uh, offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman answered, uh, excuse me, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Speaking of King David. Verse 18, Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So through this line, through this lineage, through King David, came Jesus the Messiah. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So now I kind of want to back up again, and like I mentioned earlier, and I want to kind of go back and look at the prophetic overview of the book of Ruth. But to understand it, and actually I, I would say once you understand that whole role of the kinsman redeemer and the things that we've been talking about, it'll help you understand Revelation chapter 5. 
because it ties very close together. In fact, if you're ever interested, you could just make a little note in your Bible or the Bible next to you. If somebody's got a Bible next to you, write in their Bible. Just write Revelation chapter 5. But anyways, all right. I want to read a couple verses to you out of Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And this is John the Apostle. He's, he's on the island of Patmos, and he has this revelation of Jesus Christ in the last days. And he has this vision here in chapter 5 in heaven. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This is a very unique scroll because in antiquity, as the archaeologists have discovered scrolls, typically a scroll is only written on the smooth side of a papyrus, papyrus, however you want to pronounce it, papyrus, papyrus, there we go, <laughs> papyrus. Um, yeah, I guess people don't have papillas, right? They're like papayas. <laughs> Anyways, thank you. So, Anyways. On a, on a typical scroll, it would be written on the papyrus on the smooth side, and it would be scrolled up, and then it would be, it'd be, uh, there'd be a seal, one seal on the scroll. That's what they've found. There's one exception that they have found in their digs and, and, and studying antiquity, and that is a title deed to a property. A title deed to a property, again, it's written on the inside, on the smooth side of the scroll. It's signed with one seal. But if a person can't fulfill their financial obligations, they claim, I don't know if they had chapter 11 back then, but they, they go bankrupt, basically. What happens is, if they're unable to meet their financial obligations, that title deed would have to be relinquished and on the back side of the scroll would be write, written what the debt was that they had to pay. And then there would be seven seals placed on this scroll. So this is really what John is seeing. He's seeing a title deed that a debt was, was uh, the debt's owed and the person can't pay it. And now it's got seven seals on it. Once the person was able to pay off their debts, then the, the title deed would be released back to them. They would take off the seven seals, and then they'd have their title deed. Or a kinsman redeemer could redeem that property on behalf of their poor relative. Well, the kinsman redeemer has the privilege, I said, to redeem the land that a poor relative had sold outside of the family. In Leviticus, you can see that in Leviticus 25. So the scroll in Revelation chapter 5 is a title deed, and I believe it's a title deed to the earth. And the title deed really was handed over to Adam in the garden. In the garden, when God said to Adam and Eve, or to Adam, he would be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They had dominion. Adam and Eve had dominion. But because of sin, Adam relinquished the title deed to the earth. And the debt was listed on the backside and sealed with seven seals. What's the debt? The debt is the blood of a spotless lamb. And the owner, the original owner, Adam, well, there's no way he could buy it back. He couldn't pay that price. But 
the kinsman redeemer, a close relative of Adam, would be able to do that. A kinsman redeemer could redeem planet Earth. And so you know the story. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. The title deed was forfeited over to Satan. Now, we don't read that. You go, Pastor, I've never read anything about a title deed being forfeited over to Satan. You're, you're just saying all this stuff. You're right. It's not recorded in the scriptures. But the aftermath is evident in scriptures. When Jesus is being tempted by d the devil in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, it says, Again, the devil took him up, speaking of Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How could Satan give Jesus all the dominions, all the kingdoms of the world if he didn't have the possession of them? The Bible calls him the Lord of the air, right? The Lord of the, uh, the, the prince of darkness, the Lord of the, I'm going to misquote it, but you know what I'm saying, hopefully. <laughs> Jesus, by the way, never said, uh-uh, Satan, you can't do that. That's, it's not yours to give. He never argued with them, right? Well, going back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four, the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne." What a correlation between what's taking place in the book of Ruth and what's taking place in Revelation 5. Jesus Christ, who Boaz is a picture of, he not only redeemed the planet Earth, he not only redeemed it at Calvary when he died on the cross, but he also purchased a Gentile bride, just like Boaz did. See, it's important to understand the typology of the book of Ruth. And I mentioned this in when we got into chapter 1 of, of Ruth. Boaz is a type of Savior. He's a picture of the Savior. Ruth is a type of the bride of Christ, a Gentile bride of Christ, the church. And Naomi is a type or a picture of Israel. So if we go back to chapter 1, one of the things that jumps out to me is that Ruth loves and clings to Naomi. That was one of the key points in chapter 1. And when I think of that in the, in the sense of the typology, the evangelical church... The church, now I have to be kind of specific because what I'm talking about is the evangelical church that does not believe in replacement theology. What replacement theology is, is, is they're Christians. I don't have any doubt that they love the Lord and they're born again and everything, but the, they're Christians that believe that all the promises, all the, the covenants that was originally with Israel, they've now been transferred to the church. And, and Israel's out of the pictures, all belongs to the church. That's called replacement theology, which I don't subscribe to, by the way. 
So I'm speaking of the evangelical church that does not believe in replacement theology. That Those evangelical Christians love Israel. They love Israel. They lo and they're the ones that believe Romans 11, 25 through 29 will be literally fulfilled with regard to the nation state of Israel. Those evangelical Christians, they love Israel. They bless Israel. They want to minister to Israel, just like Ruth did to Naomi. Also in chapter 1, verse 20, remember when Naomi came back with Ruth to Bethlehem, and they said, man, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She said, but call me Mara, which means bitter. And she said, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Like Naomi, for so many years, Israel has been out of the land of Israel. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, have been out of the land of Israel. Now, in Naomi's case, it was by choice, right? Her and her husband, they decided to leave the land of Israel. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they left the land as a result of rejecting their Savior. As a result of that, they were exiled from the land. You can read that in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44, where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because they've rejected him as their savior. And as a result, he's prophesying that they are going to be driven out, and it happened exactly like he said. Like Naomi, Israel has come back into the land. That's an amazing thing. Remember, Naomi said, I left full, but I've returned empty again. And the Jewish people, they've returned back to the land. They were full when they left, but they've returned empty. All the refugees after the Holocaust, World War II, coming back to a nation, a land that was really, it was desolate. It was, it was just run out. It was just wilderness, basically, because it had been not taken care of. And the nation, if you go to Israel today, you can eat some of the best produce down by the land, down by Jericho. It's amazing uh, how the land has been blessed, how God's blessed the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, transforming them. They are once again blessed, just like Naomi. You know, she came back to Israel empty, but within a short period of time, and God was blessing her through Boaz. And also in Ruth 1, in a short time, Naomi's going to meet the kinsman redeemer. And like Naomi, in a short time, the nation of Israel is going to meet their kinsman redeemer that hasn't happened yet it's starting to happen with certain jews people but one day it's going to happen to the nation in chapter two this is also very interesting remember the unnamed servant we never know what his name is we don't know much about him but he was instrumental in the meeting of ruth and boaz what a picture there is an unnamed, an unnamed servant, the Holy Spirit, who is instrumental in the meeting of Adam's kinsman redeemer and his Gentile bride. So we see the picture of the Holy Spirit in that unnamed servant. It's also not coincidental that that unnamed servant is in charge of the reapers. Very interesting. 
Also, in chapter 2, Ruth learns about the concept, because remember, she was a Moabitess. She's worshipped other gods. She didn't know anything about the, the, the God of Israel. She learns about the concept of the kinsman redeemer through Naomi. And I think the church learns about God's plan of salvation through the Jewish scriptures. We read the Old Testament. We see all these pictures paint, pointing to Jesus Christ. But Naomi learns of Boaz through Ruth meeting Boaz in the field. It was, it's amazing, I think, the pictures there. Back in chapter 2 also, in verse 14, remember that meal we talked about. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And I did talk about this when we were in chapter 2. 2,000 years before Christ was born, a guy by the name of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he gave bread and wine to Abraham, prefiguring communion, prefiguring what would happen. And then 1,000 years later, to what we're reading today in the book of Ruth, 1,000 years later, Boaz shared a meal of bread and, and vinegar, which is a, it was a type of wine, grapes made into wine, with Ruth. Again, 1,000 years later, the same picture of, of communion being shared. 1,000 years after Ruth, Jesus Christ will share a special meal with his disciples. And then 2,000 years later, every whenever Christ invites you and I to celebrate communion. We, well, in chapter 2, when we were there, it was, happened to be the Sunday that we celebrate communion. It was like, what a perfect fitting end to chapter 2. But what's interesting about the whole story is who waited on Ruth. And it says there that Boaz passed her the parched grain. Boaz, the lord of the field himself, giving this Moabite girl, this strange Gentile girl, he's offering the food to her. And what's interesting is what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Just a, so Boaz is picturing something that the Lord Jesus Christ will do. The Lord of the field is going to share a meal and he's actually going to serve. Who's he going to serve? He's going to serve those who, servants who are watching for his return. Now, Warren Wiersbe says this, In Jewish weddings, the bride was treated like a queen and the groom like a king, so you would not expect the king to minister to his staff. Our king will minister to his faithful servants when he greets us at his return, and he will reward us for our faithfulness. So if you're a faithful servant, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to serve you. We say, well, faithful in what? It says it right in that verse. Faithful in watching. Are you, are you watching for the Lord's return? Are you, are you anxious for the Lord's return? And you know, that sometimes we can say, man, I hope Jesus comes back today. And that's great. That's good to say that. But what that's really referring to is, are you living your life in anticipation of his return? Are you making decisions? Are, you, are your priorities based on, you know, Jesus Christ could come back at any time. That's what this is talking about. Are you watching for his return? That's what you need. That's what we should are called to be faithful in. Well, moving on to chapter three. 
What's interesting in chapter 3 is Naomi thinks that Boaz will redeem Ruth based on how well Ruth prepares herself and all the things that she does to present herself to Boaz. And Israel thought justification was based on how well they kept the works of the law. In chapter 4, Boaz not only redeemed, I mentioned this earlier, Boaz not only redeems the field, but purchases the Gentile bride. And our kinsman redeemer not only takes the title deed to the earth, as described in Revelation chapter 5, and then he'll reign and rule for a thousand years, but he also purchased you and I, the Gentile bride, the church, the bride of Christ. It's also pretty interesting that the entire meeting and marriage of Boaz and Ruth, all the stuff that we're talking about, they occur around the time of the completion of the barley harvest, which coincidentally or not coincidentally is when the Feast of Pentecost occurs. It's just amazing all the, the way these things fit together. Now in Ruth chapter 4 verse 14, remember it says, The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. May his name be famous. Are they speaking about Boaz or about his offspring? Yes, <laughs> I think both. I think it applies to both Boaz and his offspring. Either way, Boaz is a picture of the ultimate kinsman redeemer whose name is famous. And ultimately, their offspring, now, you know, they're, they're going to eventually, they're going to, their children's children's going to have David, the king. Through David, the promises of the Messiah will come. Jesus Christ will be born through the line of David. And so ultimately, the offspring of Ruth and Boaz would receive the name which is above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under, which, under heaven by which anyone could be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. In their blessing, Naomi, in verse 12, they said, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, or Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Why did they mention Perez? Well, his story is kind of interest, kind of similar to Obed's in a, in a way. Obed would be the son that would be born from Ruth and Boaz. Um, like Obed, he was the offspring of a Leverite-like marriage. Kind of similar, but not exactly. If you know the story of Tamar, she was a non-Israelite wife of Judah's son Ur. And Judah's son Ur died. He was wicked. And like Ruth, she became a widow. And so the law, the Leverite law, applied to Judah's other sons, but he refused to have his youngest son, Shelah, fulfill that Leverite obligation. And so Tamar, she used deception. She disguised herself as a harlot. She enticed Judah into having sex with her, and it wasn't entrapment. Judah knew what he was doing. He just didn't know who the harlot truly was. Anyways, that whole sordid episode, it resulted in the birth of twin boys. And the firstborn son was Perez. And he became the ancestor of the Ephrathites, Ephrathites and the Bethlehemites. 
So there's some similarity, but there's also some differences because both Tamar and Judah sinned in how they accomplished what they did to acquire a child. But Ruth and Boaz acted righteously. And you might say, okay, why are you bringing that up? Because here you have a group, two people that, that they didn't really do, I mean, they didn't really follow God's laws, right? They, I mean, they, they were in sin when they did what they did, and yet God rewarded them with Perez. Boaz and Ruth, they did the right thing, and God blessed them with Obed. All of these, all of these, the ones that blew it and the ones that didn't blow it, they're all in the line of the great kinsman redeemer. They're all ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Hagar, the, the, or not Hagar, um, uh, yeah, the, Rahab, thank you. I was, she knew what I was thinking. My wife, you know, we, we, as, if you get married long enough, you know what each other's thinking. Thank you very much. <laughs> Even though Perez was born under scandalous circumstances, his offspring became one of the most important clans in Judah and one of the most godly men descended from him, Boaz. And the reason why I bring that up, well, let me back up a little bit. Remember when Joseph was thrown into, he was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and eventually he, his brothers are brought to Egypt and he meets his brothers and he eventually reveals himself to his brothers and uh, he's the prime minister of Egypt and a great story and everything and, and eventually um, Jacob dies. And then the brothers are like, oh boy, dad's dead. He's not around anymore. Joseph's going to, he's going to, now he's going to take his vengeance on us. Remember that story? You know that. Well, Joseph hears what his brothers are thinking and saying, and he just, he's weeping. His heart's breaking. And he says to them in, in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, but as for you, and he's speaking about those brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Even the wicked, the, the sinful, the evil, wicked thing that you did, God used it for his glory. God used it to, to do something good. And that reminds me what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now let's be honest, not all things are good. I mean, when, you know, Saturday, our car broke down. I wasn't like, whoa, praise Jesus, it's good. You know, my car broke. No, I was, that was bad. I was bummed. You know, we've had tragedies. Those are not good things. But that's not what the scripture is promising here. The scripture says God takes all things, the good and the bad, and he works them together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. So the question is, this morning, do you love God? Are you the called? Well, then, if that's the case, if you can answer yes, then you can know today that all things, even the good and the bad that's going on in your life, God's going to work it together for good in your life. That's Scripture's promise. It isn't like an optimistic pastor saying that. That's the Word of God saying that. What's my point? Well, God can take the sinful actions of others against me, or even my own sinful actions, and use them for his glory. So I just I want to encourage you this morning. Another thing that I think is kind of interesting is that throughout the book of Ruth, Ruth is referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. She's got kind of a title, the Moabitess. So she's in Israel, she's the Moabitess. You know, it's like she's, she's standing out, you know, the Moabitess, <laughs> the foreigner, whatever you, however you want to describe it. But in verse 
10 of chapter 4, this is the last time she'll be referred to as a Moabitess. Boaz says, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife. She's no longer going to be known as Ruth the Moabitess, but Ruth the wife of Boaz. I, I, I hope you're kind of sensing that, what I'm trying to get across. Let me read to you Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're that Gentile bride. We're the Moabitess. And now we have a name. We are the bride of Christ. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Man, that's just that's a picture of us in that scripture there in Ruth chapter 4. Now, I want to just reflect a few minutes on Naomi. So she went with her husband Elimelech to Moab. She left the house of bread, Bethlehem. She left the place where God, you know, it, yeah, it, was, it was difficult times. But if she, if her and her husband had just stuck it through, God would have provided. God would have taken care of them. But they hightailed it out of there. They left, not temporarily. They relocated to Moab. Scriptures, it's, they, they were there. It was like that's their new home to settle down in. And for 10 years in Moab, it just brought misery. You read all the different things that happened. But the few short weeks back in Bethlehem brought blessing. Why? Because Naomi had gone back to the house of bread, gone back to Bethlehem, and because Ruth, her daughter-in-law, met her kinsman redeemer. Now, I want to just close with this. You and I, we will never find joy. We'll never find satisfaction or blessing in Moab. When you move away from the Lord, that's what I'm talking about. When you move out away from the Lord God, away from, you know, just submitting to whatever he's doing in your life, you will never, you might think, well, it's, it's going to be better over here. It'll never be better. You'll be in misery. It's only in Judah, which by the way, Judah means praise. It's only in the house of praise. It's only in Bethlehem, the house of bread. We talked about that as a picture of scriptures. And it's only in the field of our kinsman redeemer is where you and I are going to be blessed, where we're going to find that joy and that satisfaction like Ruth and Naomi did. Why don't you stand and let's go, Lord, in prayer, and I'll have the worship team come on up.